Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. The word of the Lord. But we're going to look at um, what for me is uh, an interesting little passage. John 21. We read an account of the risen Jesus turning up again, and it's one of those moments in the gospel when you're thinking about the resurrection, which is what we are doing really in this season of the church's life. It's still Easter. It's one of those appearances you really can't explain as wish fulfillment, that the resurrection was somehow something that the disciples dreamed up out of the catastrophe of the cross. And we hear a, um, a really a second time that the disciples go fishing to no avail. There's another account right at the beginning of the Gospels where the disciples go fishing, they don't catch any fish, Jesus turns up, they catch a, catch a big haul. And so it's a kind of repeat, which is kind of interesting, but this time Jesus is not in the boat with them. Something's shifting, something's changing, and they don't recognize him as he yells out advice, try fishing on the other side. 
But what I really want to focus on this morning is the fact that this, John 21, is, many scholars think, a later addition to John's gospel. So it was something that was added later on, which doesn't invalidate it, but it does beg the question, why is it there? John has actually already finished his gospel in the previous chapter, in John 20. And I don't know if we got this slide. Um, he finishes it like this. John finishes his gospel by saying this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the end of John 20, and that is the end, probably, of John's gospel as originally he compiled the Jesus materials. That that's the whole point. The whole point of John's gospel, of Jesus coming, is that you would have life in his name. What does it look like to have life in Jesus' name? Well, I'm glad you asked. What do you think? Is life in Jesus' name something that will come at some point, perhaps when we die? It's something yet to come? Or is it something that you already have now? Life in Jesus' name. However you understand what true life in Jesus' name, the question is, well, of course, in the light of the resurrection, what am I supposed to do now? How am I supposed to live this life in Jesus' name now? I think, and this is what I want to look at this morning, is that John 21 is a kind of picture, if you will, of what life in Jesus' name is going to look like. How the true life that has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, which is poured out into us by the work of the Spirit, through the Word and Spirit, what does that look like for us now, living, as it were, between the coming of Jesus and the coming of Jesus in this present age? And what we see, I think, in this passage is a sort of pattern that the life we are called into as a church is not at all passive. It's extremely active. And it's a life of fishing, feeding, and following. Let's pray, and then we will look at the Scriptures together. Father, this morning, as we look at these passages, these passages that are part of John's gospel, that are there for a reason. They've been put there to teach us something. Would you be our teacher? Holy Spirit, we invite you to meet us where we need to be met, to speak to our hearts. Lord, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. So, as many of you know, I've spent quite a lot of time hanging out in the Mosaic District, The Mosaic District is not far from here, it's about 15 minutes away, and one of the things that interests me about it, it is one of the ways that urban America is developing all over North America. These kinds of places are being developed by extremely clever people, property developers. And their property developers have one thing in mind, they want people like you and me to come, right? That's what they're there, that's what they're trying to do, they're trying to create places that are attractive, And the Mosaic District offers very intentionally a vision of flourishing life. When I first arrived there, and a lot of the buildings were still being built, everywhere you walked, there were messages on the walls, literally written onto the walls of this area. 
And basically, to paraphrase them, what those messages were saying is, look, you come here to the Mosaic District, you'll get a mix of living and working, and of course, retail. Where will we be without retail? It's offering you the promise of community, healthy living, organic food options, and above all, surprisingly, the opportunity to develop yourself, to become the person you want to be. You're free to choose what that good life looks like, but come to Mosaic and you will get it. It's all held together under the banner of a never-ending quest to enjoy a greater degree of comfort and, of course, most importantly, craft beer. What is not to like? What's not to like? It's great. It's a compelling vision of flourishing life and it is working. And I couldn't escape the irony. There was no intention, I don't think, in the developers. But right in the heart of the Mosaic District is a restaurant called True Food. That's the message of the Mosaic District. This is True Food. Now, I've met a lot of interesting people in my time in Mosaic who come searching for True Food. There's one guy who I'll call Bill. That's not his real name. Bill had come up out of a very messy family situation, joined the army, got a girl pregnant, got married, got divorced, has a son, semi-alcoholic, just an ordinary life. Got a DUI, got a second DUI, he's probably doing time now. But I met him because he'd taken a second job in the little cafe that sits right in the middle of Mosaic District. He didn't need it for the money so much. He came because that job offered him some sense of community which he could not find anywhere else. So he took a second job working in a cafe to experience some level of community. You don't have to work very hard to peel back the illusion of mosaic if there isn't much community. There's a lot of loneliness. Surprise, surprise, retail really doesn't satisfy. There are obvious inequalities in the communities that come. If you hang around there, you see you know, the people who come to surf and clean the streets and stuff like that and serve in the restaurants, and then the people who eat in the restaurants, the people who can live there, the people who can't afford to live there. It's not flourishing life. It really isn't. So Jesus said, I have come to bring true life. And in the words of Miroslav Volf, who's my favorite theologian of the moment, who was a man who grew up in the communist part of Eastern Europe, knew what it was like to live under a system that promised flourishing life but didn't deliver. And he says this about Jesus. Jesus doesn't come offering a how-to. Six ways to a richer, more meaningful life. Nor does he counsel how to shield your interior life from the world around you. No, he proclaims and demonstrates the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came to do. For the Christian then, the problem of flourishing life isn't a matter of tips and tweaks. Flourishing life requires the transformative presence of the true life in the midst of the false, which requires that the true life come to be in the midst of the false world. Do you get what he's saying here? That the call of the church, the call of the Christian life, is to become the transformative presence of true life in the midst of the false. Simple, right? 
Yes? Is anybody nodding? <laughs> what does that look like? Well, I'm not going to give you an answer this morning because I think in many ways that is the entire task of the church and of theology, is to imagine or improvise in some way true life in the midst of the force. And I think what John 21 does, and that's what we're looking at this morning, is set out a sort of pattern or framework within which to improvise that true life, that true flourishing in the midst of the force. And the first thing we see is that this true life is going to involve lots of fishing. Have we got any fishers here this morning? Anybody who actually likes fishing? There are not many of you. I don't know. Oh, a few of you. This is what we read. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Interesting. Jesus said to them, children, little ones, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And that's what they do, and they catch this big haul of fish. Now, for if you've been around the church, this is quite familiar to you, and often we'll read this passage as being strictly about evangelism, right? I will make you fishers of men. And I think that is true. But Tim Keller points out there's a deeper meaning here. There's a deeper level to understand this story of fishing. This is what Tim Keller says. To ancient people, symbols were important. They lived in a world which was full of symbolism, and the sea was a symbol of chaos of death, of disorder, a symbol of the cold, the dark. And so fishing is transferring out of one kingdom and bringing into another. Fishing is kingdom language. This is what it says, or Paul said in Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This image of fishing is about transferring people from one kind of kingdom to another. And what my friend Bill needed was a reordering of his life. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for another kind of kingdom that he could not find. He had come to Mosaic to work in a little cafe to see if he could find another kind of kingdom. I've been spending a lot of time thinking a lot uh, about business business people and their impact on the world and business as mission and the whole field of uh, social entrepreneurship. Do you know what I mean by that? That business has this capacity to raise people up, that in many ways business is a better way of raising people out of poverty than government programs. It's just statistically true. And what's really interesting to me is that as a business starts to think, well, how can I be socially transformative? The questions aren't, oh, how can I be nicer to people? How can I sort of think more worthy thoughts? The only way it works is if you start to transform the end to which that business is directed. So you stop thinking only about dollar amounts, so that that has to be a part of it, and you start to measure social impact, impact on the environment, and all sorts of other measures. And companies or organizations like Deloitte, who's a consulting company, have now developed these social impact measures. They're looking at how businesses impact the world. And the point is that it is a reordering of thinking that actually transforms behavior. 
And that is what is in view here when Jesus says, you've got to go fishing. You've got to start moving people out of one kingdom into another. But it's no good just going fishing. Once you've got the fish, you've got to feed them or they die, right? There's a lot of eating in the New Testament, which if you're a fan of food like me, is good news, right? So Jesus, having invited the disciples into this activity of fishing, transferring people from one kingdom to another, then starts to talk and demonstrate feeding. This is what we read. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Why did they record that? Who counted? I don't know. It's extraordinary to me. And although there were so many, the net was torn, was not torn. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Isn't that a lovely invitation? Come and have breakfast with me. Worried about evangelism? Just eat a lot of food and then invite other people to come and join, it with you and join in. It's easy. Eat a lot of food and invite others to join you. And then having fed his disciples, Jesus then invites the disciples to feed others. That's the pattern. Go fishing, start feeding, and then feed others. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Lots of sermons been written about that. What's he talking about? Love me more than the other disciples? Love me more than the fish? Who knows? And Jesus says to uh, Peter three times, yes, oh, so Peter says to Jesus, excuse me, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he, Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. And he says it three times. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Lots of sermons written on those three statements. Lots of really bad sermons. What's in view here, for sure, is the restoration of Peter, who betrayed Jesus three times, right? So now three times, Jesus restores him. But also, there's a simple repetition going on here. There's an imperative. Do this. Just do it. Feed my sheep. Go on feeding them. How do you do that? Well, that's why you're here this morning. You come to graze at Christ Church Vienna. Yum, yum. But that's what it is. Don't stop feeding, and don't stop feeding others. Here's a little thing that I've noticed. I've discovered a remarkable thing in my life. That if you eat a lot and do nothing, what happens? The eating and feeding is not without purpose. Feeding can have a negative consequence, can't it, if nothing happens out of it. That is possible for us to just go on feeding and eating and doing nothing. And actually, strangely, that can become a negative. But that is not what is in view here. The extraordinary claim of true life in Jesus' name is that Jesus is now feeding us with himself. And as we are fed we ourselves start to put on flesh and become a body. That body is called the church, correct. And that church is intended to be true life emerging among the force. That is the pattern. That is what is in view. 
And if you go beyond John into the book of Acts, which is a record of the church as it began to emerge, this is what you read. This is from Acts 2. As they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, yum, 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 lots of food, feeding, feeding, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, more eating, 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 all came upon their soul, uh, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, the presence of Christ. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay, Johnny, if you want to stand up now, let's start passing around. Why are you smiling? Nervously. They had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It is difficult to underestimate the completely radical nature of the church as it emerged in the ancient world. It was utterly other to anything that anybody had ever seen. Jew and Gentile worshipping together. Oh my gosh. Male and female, slave and free, equal before Christ. Oh my gosh. An ethic of love and service in an ancient world that did not understand why on earth you would want to do anything other than look after number one. Practically immoral to do anything different. So the church, as it is fed and emerges, is a kind of radical alternative community. That's what the church looks like. And it seems to me the task for us today is to say, okay, that's what happened 2,000 years ago. What does it look like for the church now to be a kind of other thing in this world? An embodiment of the true life emerging amongst the force. Well, let me give you just an example of one thing that I've seen that has really interested me of a church that is beginning, who's really wrestled with this for 20 years. We've been wrestling with that in the Mosaic District, and I was really surprised to see something very similar to the kinds of visions and dreams that we've been having in Mosaic emerge in the Navy Yard in D.C. This is the church called uh, National Community Church. And National Community Church, I don't know if you've got these images, we can throw them up. Been around for about 20 years, fishing and feeding for 20 years or so, and out of that has started to come this vision of what true flourishing would look like in the Navy Yard in D.C. This is a building. If you go back, I don't know if there's one image. Go, go back. If you can go back a couple of images. One more. That's it. This is, it used to be an old trolley station where they kept the trolley. Could you call them trolley cars? Yeah, okay. And um, that's what it was. Big. It's hundreds of thousands of square feet. And hundreds. I think it's about 100,000 square. It's big. It's really big. And they started to say, well, I wonder, you know, the, the, the whole sense that they had was, well, we need to be a, a kind of embodiment of flourishing as a church, of true life, emerging in the marketplace. That's what we think we should be doing. And so they've taken this, they bought it about 10 years ago, and finally the tenants moved out. And so now they're turning that whole building into a place I don't know if they'd use these exact words, but a place of flourishing for the whole community. And in that building, there's going to be an incubator for businesses because they think that business is a great way to lift people out of poverty. So there'll be an incubator for business, an, inc an economic engine for the neighborhood. There's that going to put a co-working space in there, so there'll be a place where people who work remotely can come and find communities and work together. 
and if you go on to the next slide, they're going to put a childhood development center because they recognize that in D.C. it's really difficult to be a kid. So let's bring flourishing to childhood in D.C. And then the next slide. And then they put a, an event space, what they're calling an event space, not a sanctuary, but an event space right in the heart of the building, which, of course, on Sundays will be where they worship and where they bring the Word and Spirit, where they bring the sacrament. You see, for me, that is a vision of true, not, not utopia, not perfect, but a church that has wrestled with this thing of what does it look like in 2019 for the true life to kind of break in amongst the force. What does that look like? That needs to look like something. It's not just a theory. It's not just an idea. How did they get there? Well, they fished and fed for 20 years. And then the last part of what we're looking at this morning, they followed. When we talk about following Jesus, we go, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. Follow Jesus. And of course, there is a sense in which following Jesus is a general thing, right, isn't it? There are certain things we know we should do because we're followers of Jesus and certain things we shouldn't do. But if you look very carefully at what Jesus is doing here with Peter and John, the two disciples, he's demonstrating, I think, that following, following Jesus is something which is specific as well as general. It's not just kind of generally trying to be a Jesus follower. It's following exactly what Jesus is asking you as an individual or you as a community, as a church to do, which might look quite different to what somebody else is being asked to do. This is what we read. Peter, uh, Jesus is saying this to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he's talking to Peter because he's basically saying, look, you're going to follow me. This isn't going to end well. I'm just preparing you in advance. And you remember that tradition says that uh, Peter is crucified upside down on a cross, right? So there's a kind of sense that this is already in view. This is what he said to show by that kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. That's what you've got to do, Peter. You've got to follow me. Even though, actually, this is going to lead to your death, you've got to follow me. And Peter, reasonably, I always love Peter. He's my favorite disciple. Peter gets a bit miffed. He says, okay, if that's what you've got in store for me, what about John? What's going to happen to him? You've got the same in store for him? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, the writer of the gospel, kind of writing in code to say, this is me. Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that was going to betray you? Remember, John was the one who asked that question. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about John? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? If it's my will that I do something completely different with John than I'm going to do with Peter, you, Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. You listen to me through the Scriptures, by the Spirit, through the body of the church. You listen to me, and you do what I tell you to do. You are not responsible for the outcome. You are just supposed to follow. And here's what I've seen and what I've come to expect. 
We, the church, have been transferred into the kingdom. We are fish that used to live in one kind of order, and now we're in another kind of order. An order, a kingdom that is oriented towards love. Simple as that. As we've been transferred, we get fed up. We start to put on flesh. We become a body. And we start to manifest, not perfect, but an embodiment of the true life amongst the false. And as we do that, we're going to start, or we should start, to groan. Are you groaning? Because we should start to feel this tension this increasing, not decreasing tension between the life that is now in us and the life that we experience around us in the world. As the true life becomes ever more in us, the more we should feel viscerally the false life that is around us. A church that is full of the world and spirit would be full of people like you who then start to dream. Are you dreamers? You're not nodding. Nobody is nodding. Do any of you have dreams and visions? As Christ is in you, and you walk whatever your sphere of your world, your influence, wherever, do you dream? Do you start to feel, oh, I wish, or I have a vision that, or... You see, I think that's what following Jesus looks like. Again, in the book of Acts, this is what we hear. And in the last days, we are in the last days. We're between the coming of Jesus and the coming of Jesus, right? That's the last days. God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, that's all of us, and your sons and your daughters, that lot over there, will prophesy. You ready for that? that they may see things that you're not seeing, and they will speak it out, they will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and young women. Your old men. Shall dream dreams. What? Just kind of fantasies? Is that what we're talking about? Nice unicorns? I don't know. No, of course not. The whole story of the Bible is how God ultimately will make his home here on earth. It is dreams and visions of the true life breaking in amongst the false. How will you get there? You've got to follow Jesus. And I just want to finish with this thought for you. This is what, if anything, I've learned in my time in the Mosaic District, listening to people who are outside the church. In our post-modern, post-truth, post everything else, post-Christendom world, better arguments are not going to win. Better apologetics are not going to convince people. What they are looking for are better examples of true life that they can see and touch and taste and say, gosh, that's interesting. I like the feel of that. I don't know what it is, but I like being around it. That's enough as a starting place. And so we need a lot of crazy Christian visionaries and dreamers who will start to envision and dream what that true life, not utopia, not finished, not perfect, but 
true life, life in Jesus' name, beginning to break into the world through his body, the church. That's us. And in this passage that we've looked at, John is kind of giving us an epilogue, a framework within which to improvise. These three things have got to be there as we do it. We've got to keep on fishing, we've got to keep on feeding, and we've got to keep on following. Let's pray. Lord, I believe with all my heart that right here this morning we have um, people to whom you have spoken and are speaking. Big dreams, small dreams, big visions, little visions. The Lord, because you are at home here among us, because your spirit is here, because your word is here, because your sacrament is here, because you are feeding us, you are inviting us to take the life that is in us out into the world. And Lord, you will and have been and will speak. You will. And you will teach us how we are to follow you as individuals and a community. So Lord, we give you all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.